0: Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Lot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. On December 1st, 2021, the United States Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, henceforth Dobbs. This case could Have a profound impact on abortion law in the United States. But what is the case about? What's the central question the court will address and how are pro-life supporters weighing in on it? Today I'm joined by Dr. Marie Hilliard, Senior Fellow of the NCBC. Marie is uniquely qualified to answer these and other questions as she has participated in the drafting of three amicus briefs for the Dobbs case. These briefs were filed on behalf of pro-life organizations, including the NCBC. Dr. Marie Hilliard, welcome to Bioethics On Air. It's
1: so good to see you, Joe. I am working off-site, as most of us are, so I haven't been able to see your happy face. And as a neighbor, my office was adjacent to yours and always a good colleague to work with, so thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, Marie, you're the you're the only one who can see my face in this podcast and that's probably a good thing because as <laughs> and I said I <laughs> Yeah, well, I have a face for podcasts. You don't. So, but anyway, but Marie, you are uh, I've been I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while and this is, you know, the Dobbs case is a great opportunity to do so, but as a new guest on our podcast, I was wondering if you could uh, tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience leading up to your work at the NCBC. We'll talk about the NCBC in a second.
1: Sure. Well, it's interesting. When anyone asks me what I am, what's my profession, I always respond nurse. And it's my identity, which leads us into some of the dilemmas that healthcare providers experience. But I am a nurse uh, since I was 18 years old when I went to Children's Hospital in Boston. But there are some um, other things, of course, as you know, along the way, I have... uh, a uh, graduate degree in nursing, but in maternal child health, which is really relevant to this issue, but also in religious studies. And I have the uh, graduate degree in licentiate and canon law. And my doctorate is in professional higher education administration with a concentration on nursing education. Again, all related to some of the dilemmas that uh, we're going to talk about today, not just in terms of this case, because there are a number of them, that are happening at the parallel time at the same time that we can also address. But in any event, my background and also my work experience has been in the healthcare arena. I'm a retired Army colonel and ran schools of nursing for the Army Reserve. So it's in terms of looking at some of the issues that we're facing today, I've had a fair amount of experience also in the non-Catholic arena. But one of the things that I think has prepared me for the work you and I do together at NCBC because NCBC is so well grounded in the realities. I think it's because of the consultation line that you and I have been so involved in. But one of the things that I think has been very evident to me having worked in the non-Catholic arena uh, over the years, as well as in the Catholic arena is the issues of conscience and I have found in my professional background, I have been able to navigate those quite well. There has been great respect for conscience, but that's changing. Mm -hmm. And some of the issues that we're going to talk about today, including some of the things that are happening in Congress that are actually limiting uh, conscience and states' rights in terms of abortion, those things have been like signposts that things are really changing in terms of me being able historically to navigate these issues. So I have a background in healthcare and in canon law uh, and in and dealing with issues in the real world, which I hold that NCBC does because of our consultation line. So in any event, my background I think has led me to really understand that this isn't the field of healthcare that I entered. And we're facing some real challenges, and I hope I've been able to uh, help address them. One of the things as a canon lawyer, we look at, and NCBC looks at this uh, a lot, and that's the rights of the faithful. And the Supreme Court looks at rights, individual rights. They've kind of forgotten about that little baby in the womb, but uh, looks at individual rights. And uh, we have some great documents that are not just uh, recent, we have way back to post-Vatican II and Pope Paul VI, some of the great documents, such as Dignitatis Humanae, the Declaration on Human Freedom, that speaks to conscience. So, there's uh, a lot that I've experienced and you, as Director of Consults, now experience, that I think allows NCBC to be uniquely able to participate in these amicus briefs. So, that's who I am right now, and let's hope that uh, as we experience these things uh, through the courts, those protections I had as a younger will still be there.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's let's move to your to your work at the NCBC then. Mm-hmm. So, um, while here at the NCBC, you served as the director of public policy. What what was this role? what did What did you do in this position?
1: Well, it was interesting because when I was originally hired, I was the title I was told that I was applying for was Director of Research. But my background, I was a regulator. I regulated nursing for a state for 12 years. I regulated 62,000 nurses in nursing education. And I also had been the lobbyist, the State Catholic Conference Director for Connecticut for 10 years. So it was a little bit more fortuitous, I think, that when they saw the need to have a Director of Public Policy that I had that background. and. That background allowed me to look at some of the issues in public policy that were being promulgated, laws being passed, regulations being promulgated, and how were they impacting the common good. And so in the 10 years that I did, uh, sat in that role before I was senior fellow, we developed a number of public policy uh, statements as we continue to do now. Actually, in the last two years, we've developed either alone or with other agencies 17 such statements so we look at uh, what's happening in the public arena that's going to impact the delivery of healthcare, the common good the well-being of uh, society even and also individuals and in this case the issue the dog's case the individual well-being not just of the the baby but the mom too so we and uh, NCDC working with other agencies, and I always tried to do that because we can multiply, potentiate our effect by working with other agencies, developed over the years, a number of public policy statements, trying to convince those who make our laws and regulations, certain things that we call natural moral law are really in the common good. And so that's what um, I did in the role, as Director of Public Policy, and I continue to do now as somewhat of a liaison with other organizations.
0: Yeah. I was wondering if you could actually talk about some of those uh, other organizations, because you know, as you said, in, in addition to your work with the NCBC, you've served, and and now in your retirement, although Marie, I got to say you are a retirement failure, because I, I don't, I you. I, I don't <laughs> see you, I, I really don't see you in retirement, but anyway, but you, you've served and you continue to serve other organizations, and I'm thinking particularly the Catholic Medical Association. Can you tell us about some of these other organizations and the work that you do with them as well?
1: Certainly. And uh, I actually have quoted you a number of times, Joe,
0: <laughs> about
1: my, my failing of retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think it's my only failure, but there are others too. But I, ha- I, I have to admit, I have not been good about, about retirement. Nor will you be, i met many years from well, now. Nor will you well. be. Because yeah, you have developed many things when you came to NCBC that we didn't have in place and that was by your initiative, so... That's our Dr. Joe also. But um, I, I think even before I came to the NCBC, I think anyone working professionally, and I know this is true of you also, sees the importance of being involved in organizations, including secular organizations. I even chaired a State Nurses Association Ethics Committee years ago, and even when I was a lobbyist for the bishops, I was president of another state nurses organization. It's very important for, and when we get to the, uh, I hope, some questions that you might ask me about, you know, how others can be involved, it's really important to be uh, in the forefront in trying to shape how organizations are going to address the needs of their members. So uh, I am now and or have been um, on the board of a number of organizations. The Catholic Medical Association, I sit on their board now, And co-chair their ethics committee. Those those are the physicians of this country who are advancing, again, natural moral law as Catholic physicians, and they have other members also. I'm on the ethics committee of the National Association of Catholic Nurses USA. I'm a former president of that organization and past chair of that committee. I'm on the board of the National Catholic Partnership on Disability. And that organization advocates uh, for the inclusion, especially in the life of the church, of persons with disabilities and sees, they see the threats to persons with disability in a culture that is utilitarian and not based on natural moral law. And I sit on their ethics committee and I had chaired that ethics committee in the past and I remember, uh, re- remain as a member of their um, ethics committee. And also there's an International Organization of Catholic Nurses, CSAMS is its its acronym. And that organization is like the International Organization of National Association of Catholic Nurses USA. And I'm a former board member of that organization and former chair of their ethics committee. And so we've been able that uh, CMA and NACN and even NCBC to have some impact in the international arena, because these issues are not just local to the United States of America, for sure.
0: Right. All right. So let's let's move into the uh, the main topic for our, our discussion today. So again, Marie, even in your so-called retirement, uh, you remain very, very active uh, with the NCBC. And one of the things that you do is coordinate the NCBC signing on to various amicus or friend of the court briefs in legal cases, including cases um, that are going to be heard by the United States Supreme Court. So just before we get into delving into the specific briefs, talking about the Dobbs case, can you tell us what is an amicus brief? What's its role? Why is it important?
1: Well, it's Latin. And uh, as I say, uh, when people say they had Latin in high school, I say it had me. (laughs) (laughs) I did... uh, actually at NCBC when I was working full time, there was taking Latin at night just as uh, uh, trying to enhance what I did or did not learn when I was in high school. but in any event, it's amicus is the term is friend. and uh, a friend of the court is basically what that translates into. And that is trying to inform the court in something that on something that it is going to uh, rule. And so we're not the only one, obviously. I, I understand the Dobbs case is over a 1,000 amicus briefs that have been already filed. And, uh, of course, there was a deadline in file, filing. So it, it is basically to instruct the court on what the impact of their ruling will be and what the legal background for our opinion is on how we're uh, basically crafting our our reasonings, our arguments, if you will, on why they should rule in a certain way and what's the legal precedent. It And one of the things that we don't do, we don't, in in defining natural law, we don't have to turn to pontifical documents. It's faith and reason. And Mm -hmm. as my mother would say, sanctity is sanity. And so in (laughs) crafting these friends of the court briefs and their arguments, if you will, and reasonings, we don't have to use uh, papal documents. There's so much that's just known to the human person through reason, natural moral law.
0: Very good. All right. So as I said in the introduction, you have been involved with three uh, friend of the court briefs for the Dobbs case, which again, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear on December 1st. Before, well, actually, maybe one more uh, introductory question before getting into the briefs. What is Dobbs? I think that's probably a really uh, important right. question to ask yeah, you. Can yeah. you. Can you tell our listeners what, what's Dobbs about and what's the, the single question that the court will be addressing yeah. in this case?
1: Well, uh, in the case of Dobbs, the uh, the legislature in Mississippi uh, passed and was it was signed into law by the governor, a it's, it's a limitation that we don't like to use the word ban. It's a limitation on abortions. State law in Mississippi had a limitation at after 20 weeks, there could be no abortion. Now, that's uh, much later than, via, than the Roe v. Wade uh, first trimester mm-hmm. definition of when it could be allowed before the first trimester or during the first trimester, I should say. And then we, we later we'll get into the, the whole issue of viability. But it is before, uh, 20 weeks is still before uh, what's known at this point in terms of technology of viability. Mississippi, and by the way, those points become important later in our discussion today as we discuss the, the briefs. The position of the state of Mississippi was they believed, and I believe rightly so, that moving the 20 week limitation down to 15 weeks serves the public interest. And it actually serves more than the public interest. Uh, it serves uh, the well-being of women and certainly the states and the government's interest in protecting vulnerable human life. And they, of course, uh, had some limitations in there, even in exceptions, I should say, in terms of this limitation. And this becomes very important for us to look at in terms of what existed before at the 20-week demarcation and what we can say as NCBC that we would support 15 weeks. We look at this as incremental legislation because there are exceptions that we had to make clear in our amicus that we could not support, but this is better than existing law and therefore we could support. And that is it still does allow, that's why it's a limitation, not a ban, in emergency cases for the abortion to occur even before 15 weeks and upon diagnosis of a, a severe fetal anomaly. So basically, it's not a ban. It's moved the line of demarcation from no abortions after 20 weeks to none after 15 weeks. And so that is the issue. And of course, immediately abortion providers and that gets to a very salient point, do abortion providers who really aren't, one could say, is their interest really the best interest of the, the woman and certainly not of the baby, uh, do they have a right to challenge this? But they have. And so the the law has already been enjoined by the Fifth District Court, which says it can't go into effect, basically. Mm-hmm. So, and getting to your second question, and the question therefore, that is now before the Supreme Court, and there's some history in terms of how we got it there, and NCBC was played a good role in getting it to be before the Supreme Court, is whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. And when we're looking at pre-viability, Roe v. Wade looked at it in terms of 24 to 28 weeks. And of course, Roe v. Wade is a landmark case that everyone's saying, or had on when they overturned state laws and a number of them have been overturned. And we, we can argue why, and we did, why that uh, is not good law. And again, that 24 to 28 weeks is in 1973 might've been the case in terms of viability. It certainly isn't now. It's 23 right. weeks.
0: Right.
1: So that's the issue and Roe defined uh, by defined uh viability as potentially being able to live outside the mother's womb, albeit with artificial aid. And again, we argue why these definitions uh, are are not helpful. And so that's the long and short of the case, if you will, and which is um, what you have asked.
0: And we'll get into some of these details as we yes, as yes. we go through. I just wanted uh, to clarify one thing you said. Uh, you said the law was enjoined by the Fifth District Court. Did you mean the, the Fifth Circuit Court?
1: Did I say district? Thank you. Yeah. You've done your homework. <laughs> yes, and you don't hear yourself make these uh, uh, differentiations. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Fifth right. District. Just, want, just you, wanted very
0: very to very clarify that. Yep. No,
1: it's All an right. important point. It's important because that's a higher level and that's right. how we made it to the, district. the district court. Right. Thank yep. you, very
0: much. All right. So the first brief that you worked on uh, for the Dobbs case, the first of three, was filed jointly by the NCBC, uh, two pro life OBGYNs, and Right to Life Michigan. And this brief makes two primary arguments. And actually, you, you've kind of touched on them a little bit already, but we'll, we'll get into more detail. The first argument is that states should be able to regulate pre viability abortions in order to promote legitimate interests. Mm-hmm. So, Marie, what is this argument, and exactly how are legitimate interests defined?
1: Well, how. There are three areas, but the whole issue of legitimate state interests all relate to if we're going to curtail a right, is the state by that. But when I say we, I mean the state. If we're going to curtail a right, it has to be because there's a legitimate state interest. The common Hmm. example that I think we've all heard is we have a First Amendment speech right, but you can't uh, cry fire in a loaded. uh Crowded theater. crowded
0: theater, right.
1: So uh, when we're going to curtail a legitimate constitutional right that's written somewhere, and when we get to the 14th Amendment, it's life, liberty, and property, um, which then was uh, misused to say there was a privacy right under Roe v. Wade, which is a fiction. But in any event, uh, when, when we are going to limit such a right There has to be a state interest. And the three areas in which we, we look to is the protection of human life, because as a society, we do think that's a good. Are we uh, hurting or protecting women? And there's a lot to say about abortion that does not protect women and actually uh, can do damage. And that's statistically uh, documented. And the other thing is the role of the healthcare profession and the healer. And How are these three areas being, are these, these are legitimate state interests being impacted by this restriction? So that was one of the arguments, of course, uh, that we looked at in uh, this brief.
0: So now, uh, just uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Marie, but it, if I remember correctly, a similar argument was made in a different brief that the NCBC jointly filed with Right to Life Michigan and um, APLOG, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. That was a brief that was asking the Supreme Court to even take up this case. Right. Correct? So you made a similar argument there, correct?
1: We did. And that, and we, if, if you uh, look at this as a win, and I do, that- that uh, our arguments uh, did win uh, because what we were asked asking of the Supreme Court to actually hear the case and uh, again uh, that's why we're here on, and will be on December 1st but we looked at a number of, of things and I think uh, articulated them quite well uh, in that original and I, I'll read to you for the reasons provided in this brief Amikai, Curier and those those of us who signed it, and you've already identified them, urge this court to grant certiorari, which is to revisit the decision of the Roe viability standard, which is the point that you're you're making, the the Roe viability standard, and reverse the decision of this, the Fifth Circuit. So, yes, uh, there there was a second point, and when. Of course, everything is. Well, I, I will get ahead of myself here if I if I go too far, which is a, a temptation to do so. But the 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 Fourteenth uh, Amendment was and is the the herald, if you will, for the Roe v. Wade decision, which turned that liberty right into a privacy right, which is was nowhere in the Fourteenth Amendment, which was promulgated, and actually ratified in 1868. No one. Thought abortion was okay. Even the courts tried to argue that those those who who were arguing for Roe v. Wade tried to argue that. But in 1868, there was no way that that's what that uh, 14th Amendment uh, was to address. But viability, and that's the second point, of course that you're you're referencing.
0: Yeah, that's a so yeah. That's let's let's kind of go there. So the, the mm-hmm. as part of this first primary argument, and actually going to the central question of the case, this brief. Um, maintains that one, the present viability standard is no longer workable, and two, that Mississippi's 15-week standard is actually "quote unquote" superior to viability. So, Marie, what's 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 being argued here, and
1: why? Well, what we said was basically, and I'm paraphrasing: it's the viability standard that was used is a judicial fig leaf; was, it was made up uh, to cover certain body parts is what a fig leaf is. But because it, uh, the it's a moving target for starters, it's not workable in terms of if you are in a NIC uh, facility, abortions occurring in the facility um, or not occurring because a decision is made, where there is a level three intensive neonatal intensive care unit, uh, that viability standard uh, is going to be very different. And prenatal care has a, uh, a a great deal to do with it. We have one of our uh, graduates, a physician who's a neonatologist, Dr. Robin Perucci, and she always says, you, you can't make a decision until you see the baby mm-hmm. um, on these issues, on how aggressive you're going to be. So it is uh, certainly a, an arbitrary demarcation. And, um, also, that whole uh, in Roe v. Wade in terms of viability talks about potential human beings. And the demarcation that you will see in Roe v. Wade when you look at it, Roe v. Wade says that basically the court can't decide when a human being is is present. Yet they did. Right. They made a decision that in, in tr- terms of trimesters because it was a false demarcation in terms of and then use the term viability, which is a moving target. So, um, it, it isn't, uh, workable. And this, the concept that a human being exists, science now tells us is from the, the moment of fertilization, which we know is the true definition of conception. And so the rights that the 14th Amendment, uh, said accrued to the, the woman, and uh, was applied in Roe v. Wade, saying that that 14th Amendment Accrued that right to the woman. Really, that unborn child, who is a human being from the moment of conception, uh, has the same rights. So, granted, we're not happy with 15 weeks. We'd like it from the moment of uh, of uh, being aware that a child has been conceived. But it is a uh, more accurate, scientifically, uh, arguably a more accurate. Uh, definition. And nowhere in the Constitution, nowhere in the Constitution, does it deny the rights of an unborn child or give a right to abortion. Uh, the interest begins when human life begins. And so uh, we, in our am- amicus briefs, have supported 15 weeks, although we would like it to be, from the moment of conception. So Roe's conception of our humanity as technical technologically being determined by what is not always a constant, that techno- technological determination is not a constant, the viability is a variable, but it's a dehumanizing. It's really a dehumanizing um, demarcation, and we have argued that, and that the state has a great interest, which is the state's right and obligation to protect that child as early as we can. So, what we do, therefore, in this brief that you've just identified, is we then go into great detail demarcating developmental milestones even earlier.
0: Yeah, that was I, my I, argumentation. Yeah, it's it's a great. I mean, we could spend um, <laughs> we could spend an hour and a half talking about just just that, but it, it really is a, a, a wonderful argument that's made in this brief, and I would uh, encourage people to. Uh, to, uh, to read it. And, and, um, and it, it Can I just
1: add one more point that I thought sure. was really fascinating that we included? And, you know, I'm a pediatric nurse with a master's in maternal child health, So, but when I was studying for that degree, we didn't have the technology we're having now. It wasn't in the 1800s, but we didn't have the, <laughs> we didn't have the technology. And things like the baby is sucking the baby's thumb at nine weeks in the womb. And shows a preference at eight weeks for right or left hand. I mean, how can you deny the humanity? So there's a great um, expose, if you will, in our brief about all these developmental milestones to the court. That undeniable. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: This is life we could go
0: on for Yeah, we could uh, and I this. could. I'm sorry, I could. <laughs> well so Marie, the, the now I'd like to go back to, to something that you've you've brought up a couple of times, the Fourteenth Amendment. So mm-hmm. the the second primary argument of this first brief that you signed on to is that the Supreme Court essentially misinterpreted uh, the fourteenth amendment in the roe decision. Now, you've kind of talked about this already. Um, but it's in Roe. and actually you could I think you could probably make the, the case for subsequent abortion related yes, cases yes. like Casey and others. Yes, yes. So so what is your argument? How did the court, how did the roe court misinterpret the fourteenth amendment?
1: Well it is basically a, a fiction because the fourteenth amendment when it was ratified and then we've already talked about <laughs> Before abortion was ever accepted, there was argumentations that said that these um, restrictions were already being overturned in some jurisdictions uh, back in the 1800s. But that there's no evidence of that that I'm aware of. Right. Uh, but in any event, um, the, what the 14th Amendment sa- says there is the state can't deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And again, the right to life, liberty, or property was translated into the right to privacy. And it actually didn't even, in terms of Roe v. Wade, the due process piece was almost immediately obliterated in the Doe v. Bolton companion decision that said that uh, anything that uh, impacts a woman's Health, which could could include uh, mental health, could justify the abortion. So the question is: Have we have we really accomplished due process here? And if we look at what the Fourteenth Amendment was to rectify, it was a violation of the rights of a vulnerable population—slaves. Right. It was to yep. to rectify that. And uh, what about the violation of the natural rights of the unborn child? So. Uh, it was uh, a really misrepresentation of what that very uh, amendment, Fourteenth Amendment was created to do. It was a violation of what it was created to do. A vulnerable population was to be protected, but it was selective in terms of its application because the Fourteenth Amendment didn't make it selective. It didn't say it recognized the rights of persons who uh, of color, but it, it wasn't, uh, therefore, saying, and no one else has these rights. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, the use of the 14th Amendment, we argue in this brief, was definitely a misuse in Roe v. Wade. And you see it used also used in, in later decisions, as, as you've already identified, in terms of Casey. But Casey, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but, but Casey also said... There must be a demonstrated undue burden, in this case, the woman. And then, of course, uh, they identified that there was one, but we hold in our brief that there, when you actually allow for some abortions, and again, the NCBC doesn't support that, but if you allow for some, you have shown that it doesn't preclude anyone from getting an abortion, which does, by the court's determination, would have created an undue burden. So it's it's application of the Fourteenth Amendment just not just in Roe v. Wade, but in subsequent cases, uh, and there as there is attempt to do to apply it here, uh, is a misuse of that Fourteenth yeah. Amendment.
0: Yeah. And again, similar to um, the, I, I asked you this previously. Uh, a, a similar argument was made in the amicus brief that the NCBC jointly filed with Right to Life Michigan and an A plug asking the, the court to take up the Dobbs case. So the same argument was made in, in that brief as well, was it not? Right.
1: Correct, correct, yeah. yes. Yeah. And um, as we said, it's hard to find within the scope of the 14th Amendment a right that, has apparently, that was apparently completely unknown to the drafters of the amendment.
0: I love it's, that line.
1: Yeah, I think it's a pretty good it, argumentation.
0: It's a great line. I, I've always wondered, you know, and even uh, abortion supporters will grant this, that that Roe was really it's a really poor decision legally and I just I don't understand how can Supreme Court justices who are really smart people come up with a decision that's so dumb
1: well they say it, it's always been done that way and I know what we're going to be talking about it. that's what <laughs> basically the argument is so but two wrongs don't make a right right they're looking at precedent
0: yeah. And uh, we
1: see that, we, we actually see that in the subsequent uh, Hellerstadt case uh, in, in Texas, more recently decided on uh, admitting privileges. And it, yeah. it, it uh, kind of heralds where the Supreme Court may or may not be going. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Yeah. But yes, yeah, well, since, this- since we've already always done it this way, now, why not do it this way now?
0: Yeah, and that's a great lead-in into the next question, the whole precedence question. And, you know, we've always done it this way, so let's just keep doing it. So uh, abortion supporters will often cite stare decisis mm-hmm. um, as the rationale, or as a rationale, I should say, to not overturn Roe and, and again, any of the subsequent rulings, including Casey and others. Marie, what is stare decisis?
1: Again, Latin. And, yeah. And, and uh, as is- I said, I, it had me. I didn't have it. it- it, but
0: yeah. <laughs> well what is it and how did how did this brief address the question yeah.
1: well it's it says to stand by things decided that's what the Latin translation is that it, again it's you know we, we've already done, always done it this way and Casey actually and we argue this erroneously uh, argues that uh, basically and I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. uh, it, it's now it's become relevant because it's 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 developed relevance because it's now been accepted and it's it's basically enshrined and we we argue against that and one of the cases that is great about this is the partial birth abortion uh that went to the supreme court the Mm -hmm. the ban on partial birth abortion gonzalez versus carhart and um
0: that was 2003 correct
1: 2007. Somewhere.
0: 2007, okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, the law was passed in 2003,
1: I the, think. The, the Supreme Court case was, again, you've done your homework. <laughs>
0: well, I got my dates a little bit wrong. The federal law, I think, was 2003, we, and then the case into the court in, was decided in 2007.
1: And the um, that, that it was constitutional to have right. uh, this ban, the federal ban. And if you look at... It's a, it's a ban not based on trimester or viability. It's a ban, a ban on procedure. Mm-hmm. So to say we've always done it this way in terms of viability and uh, the, although I, I will say Casey looked at viability and it, we kind of gotten rid of during the Casey decision, which uh, we haven't even discussed yet, but, um, which basically looked at viability over a trimester. But that issue, which is the issue here, for God's case on viability, uh, has already been looked at. And the Gonzalez decision was that this is constitutional, and it didn't look at trimesters of viability. It looked at a procedure. So we have some, and we argue that. We have, we have some good um, argumentation that precedent shouldn't just prevail, and that the, the merits of protection under the, the 14th Amendment, and we argue that also. Should be applied to this, this very vulnerable human being. And again, the, the Mississippi, uh, law of 15 weeks protects, uh, vulnerable human life. And if you think about that, is it more important to protect a child who is more vulnerable, which is pre viability, than the child who is less vulnerable as a viable human being? I mean, it makes no sense. And we, we also, uh, argue that, that just because it's precedent, it's bad, why it's bad precedent is a right. logical sense. Right, It doesn't make sense that uh, we are going to uh, provide more protection when a child can live outside the womb. So, and then the methods used. We also uh, looked at uh, in our argumentation about the, the message, the methods that must be used post viability. The catheter, because the baby's More form, the baby has to be basically dissected in a a D and E to to remove the baby. So, uh, and the well-being of the mom also uh, later in pregnancy. So, in any event, we argue that just because it's precedent, and that we give some good examples of how the law and uh, Gonzalez is is one of the cases uh, has already identified cases in which viability just because that's been the standard in the past is not necessarily the uh,
0: standard. Okay. Great. All right, so let's move to the second brief that you worked on for the Dobbs case and this brief is is really at the heart of the question that the court is addressing. And this brief was filed jointly by the Catholic Medical Association, the Catholic Asso- excuse me, the National Association of Catholic Nurses USA. Idaho Chooses Life, and Texas Alliance for Life. Now, this brief focuses on medical-related difficulties with using viability as the standard in abortion cases. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what this brief argues?
1: Sure. Well, some of the things I've already identified as problematic uh, were argued very well in this brief. Again, we had uh, the Catholic Medical Association, some great physicians, Involved who can identify some of those uh, those risks, and again the the issue of the probability of surviving and how that's changing, we could articulate that quite well, and how arbitrary a 1973 uh, decision is in terms of the technology we now have in 2021. So we looked at the reasoning for making a viability determination and who's making that determination. We argue about that because if we are making a demarcation, that viability is the standard. Well, who's making that determination? Is the person making that determination? Who is the abortionist going to have the best interest of of the mom and baby in terms of uh, what, what is going to happen if this abortion occurs post viability. And therefore, what we we know is, when we look at the state's interest in the best, in, uh, best interest of vulnerable human life, that decision is going to be made by someone. And it's an arbitrary decision, because if we're making it in terms of can we save this life, we're going to be looking at that very same data differently than if we're making exactly. it in terms of can we abort under the law. Right. And who is making that decision so in terms of the problem of viability that it bas- basically begins to have no meaning is what we argue uh, for the same reasons also in terms of uh, what we've just addressed in terms of how it's a moving target but we identify how every state that has tried to put a, a exception into a limitation or ban on abortion that it would it would be allowed if it's needed to maintain the physical well being of the mother and limit it to that has been overturned by lower courts. And so we see that it's a falsehood. It's it is it has no meaning if there's this exception and the only exception uh, which is no exception. That seems to be allowed in these lower court decisions. By that, I do mean lower court, because none of those have actually, until Dobbs, have reached the the, the Supreme Court. In the, the way this, this this case is uh, identified and progressing, the only exception that we see that's ever seems seems to be allowed is the mental health well-being of, of the mother. As as how so, it, basically, what we argue is this: this whole argument about liability has become useless. Right. And it's it's a um, a false assurance that society is protecting uh, life and, and health uh, and well being of the profession, etc. Uh, when in fact, it has absolutely no teeth.
0: Yeah, I really uh, there's a the part of this brief that really got my attention. You mentioned it right at the beginning. Is who is the person who's determining viability? Um. And it's, you know, as I was reading it, and as you were speaking here, I, I, the only thing I could think of is, in a, is what's happening is the physician is kind of judge, jury, and executioner here. I mean, the, the, the physician is the one who's, well, the you abortionist, know, the, the abortionist, abortionist is, that, that's yes. what I mean. Yes. The abortionist yeah, well, is it, the one it, who's it determining, is. you know, this child is not yet viable. And, and again, just, you know, when, when my wife was, um, when she was pregnant with our daughter, you know, there's always that question. You never exactly know you know how far along in the gestation period you are, and and you know doctors will say that there's you know there's kind of you don't exactly know exa- where you are, but this you know the abortion is the one who, who's determining. Oh, okay, no, this this child is not at viability, and as you said, um, whose whose interests are are you right. know are at play here? I mean, um, certainly not the child's. Um, certainly you can make an argument that the abortionist's interests are at play because if he or she doesn't perform the abortion, they don't get paid or, you know, the, the, the the center where the thing where the abortion is happening, isn't going to get paid. And so that just really struck me. Um, And the well-being of the
1: mother and the well-being of the mother, because there's data supports that uh, there are the the complications of later pregnancies that can occur, especially later in the pregnancy, the abortion occurs. So, uh, yes, the question is, who's making that decision? And we argue that. I mean, this is, right. uh, who's making that decision? And that very same decision could be made differently if we're looking at viability. Can we save this baby? And that would be by the neonatologist who does right. have the best interest of that baby yep. versus can I legally make this decision about, about non-viability by the abortionist who has something to gain.
0: Right. And those are two very, very different decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that one—that uh, brief got my ire up uh, mm-hmm. just a little. Mm-hmm. It should get everybody's ire up. Uh, but anyway, let's let's move on. Um, okay. So, in in the in the third brief that um, well, in the third brief filed in the Dobbs case, you are a co-signer along with 239 other women, scholars, and professionals, and some of those who are uh, quite well known by the NCDC, as well as um, some pro-life organizations. Now, this brief. Counters the often heard claim that women need abortion in order to achieve occupational and economic success. Now, you mentioned this uh, briefly a little bit uh, a little while ago, but I was wondering can you get into a little more detail? What does this third brief argue?
1: It's a horrible argument. (laughs) It is so demeaning to women. And we demonstrate in this brief that it's just not factually true. That the advances in, in, women's economic status and career mobility, uh, actually began with laws that predated Roe v. Wade, like the Equal Pay Act and the Equal Employment Act. Um, and unfortunately, uh, this argumentation was also cited in Casey. Uh, Casey, and I, you know, I, I've jumped over Casey, so if you could allow me just to. Sure. Say what, absolutely. Plan, Planned Parenthood, uh, of Southeast Pennsylvania versus Casey, and that is uh, Pennsylvania was attempting to have some limitations like parental notification um, in in terms of a minor, uh, some limitations in terms of abortion, even in terms of uh, can the spouse know about it, and those limitations that Pennsylvania uh, tried to enact and did enact were, were overturned in the the Casey decision, uh, again, using the 14th Amendment. But what, uh, they also, deciding the, the, uh, the, the Casey case, if you will, which was against the state's attempt to limit. Although it left untouched that, uh, spousal, spousal notification. But in, in some of the other limitations, uh, in, in terms of, uh, identifying for, for the woman some of the, the parameters in which uh, this would not be in her best interest to have an abortion. The, um, the undue burden was stressed, that there needs to be a look at the burden and is it an undue burden that the woman uh, shouldn't have to tolerate. And unfortunately, so it kind of changed the focus of that. If we're going to violate the 14th Amendment right of the woman, of course, we're not talking about the unborn job, as we should. Um, the undue burden standard was also looked at in that, the, the Casey case, if you will. And um, we try to argue that when we do allow for some limitations, if you will, on the impact of the law, we have not created this undue burden by, by law. So that's what, unfortunately, Casey was decided in the negative in terms of Pennsylvania law. But there are some nuances, and in that Casey dis, uh, dis argumentation and decision made by the Supreme Court, they do talk about this very same point, which is that uh, women's uh, uh, career, if you will, I'm paraphrasing, but it, the abortion has had a positive impact on, on, on women. And we can demonstrate factually right. that it has not. And we look at trends in society from the 1970s uh, to this present day. There are great today. if someone wants to look at it. There are there are great charts, if you will, that um, graphs I should say that uh, show advancement in relationship to abortion. And actually, the surgical abortions are dropping, as we know. Right uh, now, that doesn't mean abortions are dropping, but surgical abortions right. are dropping. So that's, uh, the, the argumentation that we use. It's factual. I consider, uh, the argumentation of, as a woman, that, that I would need abortion to advance my career is just so insulting. And why women who make this very argument themselves, unfortunately, don't see how insulting that is to women is, uh, personally insulting to me.
0: Yeah. And that brief also talked about, uh, or actually, it it k- kind of tore down the the study that the court used yes. to uh, to you know th- there was a like, is it the turnaround study? Yes, is that the name of it. Yes, I
1: think it's, it's turnabout. Turnabout studies,
0: right? And and the court used the the data or the the results that came from that study to say, well, yeah, you know, women need abortion for economic and occupational success. And, and the brief just tears that whole study apart. Right. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's amazing.
1: Good work. Uh, it's a long, Oh, it's a, very, it's the longest brief that of, of the three. It is the, the longest brief. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but it, it, there's some great data in there.
0: Yep. So um, love to have people uh, be able to, to read these briefs. Can, actually, Marie can, where can people get these briefs? Are these, are they, are they public? Um, oh yes. Public and knowledge.
1: They, they uh, they, are, they do become public policy. And what we've done is, on the, the briefs that NCBC is a, a, a party to, we, we have those on our, our webpage. Now, the, the third one, you know, you've asked a good question. I don't believe we've put this on the NCBC webpage, and we probably should, because we are, I personally, I'm a signatory, NCDC Great. is not. But Correct. I think, I know there'd be no problem doing that, and we certainly can do
0: that. Yeah, I'm going to, um, the ones that are on the website, I will link in the show notes here so people can can read them. Uh, but yeah, they're very, we'll very take care good. Of that. Yep. Maria, I, I have to ask this question, and I know it's an unfair question, but. Dobbs is coming up. We're, we're recording this interview on November 2nd, All Souls Day. So maybe that's a, an appropriate day for uh, for recording the interview. But the Supreme Court's going to hear oral arguments in Dobbs on December 1st. And I'm actually planning to be in D.C. Um, that day to, to be outside the Supreme Court. Are you going to be know. there? Are you going to be with the CMA? I'm gonna I'll probably hang out with the CMS yes, right, um right. At, at the Supreme Court. Wonderful. And then probably the decision will come at the end of the term, probably in June of of next year. Marie, put on your uh or look into your crystal ball or or put on your your clairvoyant hat, whatever metaphor you want to use here. Mm-hmm. What do you think the Supreme Court is gonna rule in Dobbs?
1: Well, I'm not uh asking anyone, anyone to put money on my opinion here, but <laughs> um, a, a couple things. First of all, optimistic because they even took the case. Mm-hmm. Because we had a very bad decision yesterday, as you're probably aware of the we'll talk.
0: A, we'll talk a little bit about that,
1: I think. So uh, when they, they refused to take a case as they did with Dignity yesterday, Dignity's case, and they did take this case, it gives me some hope. Now there are some parallels, some some cases that um, I think we can look to that that maybe it's the good news and the bad news. But the Hellerstat uh, case, which was a case in Texas in which the Texas uh, legislature passed into law, signed to the governor restrictions on Sites and privileges in terms of an abortionist Uh, does it have to be a clinic that's got the same clinic surgery center kind of requirements as uh, dictated by the Texas legislature and does the physician the abortionist need admitting privileges in case something goes wrong and um, that unfortunately was overturned by the Supreme Court so that's again the bad news And interestingly, Chief Justice Roberts supported. Who's a? That's the. This is where we're getting to the, the uh, unknown of uh, Justice Roberts because we we've been a little concerned, uh, uh, thinking he'd be with us on some things in the past. But in any event, he was. Unfortunately, there was another subsequent case uh, in Louisiana, very similar on admitting privileges. And when that became went before the Supreme Court, he voted against it because of precedent. Right. He said, but again, if we can argue that as we, I think we've done very well, that precedent shouldn't prevail here. We have bad law. We have bad law in Casey around the 14th Amendment there and also in Roe v. Wade. So uh, I'm hoping the fact that they, they took the case and... That there is also a different makeup of the court than when those cases were being uh, decided. That uh, perhaps we will see that reason will prevail. So uh, I think, again, uh, technology uh, is giving us different data than it did in 1973, and faith and reason should prevail. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah.
0: All right. So um, I, I guess I, I should say we would be remiss if we didn't, if we close a podcast without discussing, as you mentioned, the Texas Heartbeat Bill or SB 8. Marie, can you tell us quickly, what what does this new law, it went into effect on September 1st, what does this new law in Texas hold with regard to pre-viability abortion?
1: Well, it's, it's at the point of heartbeat, which the heartbeat actually is beating Very early, it's beating at 21 days, but in terms of uh, being uh, able to auscultate, hear the heartbeat, probably around six weeks, Uh, ultrasound six weeks, and so the Texas legislature signed into law by the governor has stated that at the point again, it's all sound reasoning in terms of technology and science is detectable that. Uh, persons can sue the the abortionist and anyone involved in assisting that uh, abortionist can can sue uh, for carrying out that procedure. It's a uh, it actually incentivizes the lawsuit too because those who sue can get up to ten thousand right. dollars for for doing it. So. Uh, there are exceptions in terms of uh, medical emergencies, and it, that, that is good because there are times when a miscarriage has already started and it's really not an abortion. You're inducing
0: right.
1: uh, the infected membranes, let's say, uh, or uh, something else that's uh, actually not a direct mutilation of the baby You're or get, removing uh, the baby when, let's say, a miscarriage has already started and bleeding has occurred. But in any event, it's uh, already been the whole woman's, it's an interesting name for a provider, whole, W-H-O-L-E, Woman's Health. When you think about right. that name. Yep. Um, is, is challenging it. But the, the, the challenges so far that went gone to the 5th uh, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, have not been successful. So the laws, in terms of enjoining it. Right. Uh, and so the law so far has been uh, upheld. And even it was, the Supreme Court was asked to enjoin it. And uh, the the usual parties, unfortunately, Roberts was a dissenter. Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer were uh, the dissenters in uh, being willing to enjoin until the final decision has uh, occurred. So in any event, it's very different and it's been upheld by the fifth circuit and not been enjoined. Um, now it's, of course, the whole case is eventually going to be heard. I'm sure, but enjoining means can we stop it right. taking effect? And even the Supreme court has said we won't enjoin it, but then the department of justice, the U S department of justice has, uh, basically now, and that's what the arguments we heard yesterday, oral arguments, um, has asked whether they have a right to sue uh, the state for uh, so crafting this law, and that's what we're waiting. It's basically the mechanism now is being being challenged: can the, the the federal government uh, sue? Uh, so that's in the oral, oral oral arguments yesterday, and although I I obviously didn't hear them, but reports of them are um, stating. All depends on which media, I guess, you're referring to. That it could be a little disappointing in our hope for uh, how it's going to be decided. So, but it's interesting that the, the mechanism they're using, because other states, there are seven other states, and if I had heartbeat laws that have all been overturned, and yeah. this one so far has survived uh, the enjoining of it, making it non-enforceable at this point. So. Uh, we again are, are hopeful but we'll see uh, what what prevails uh, this was an, a case asking for an expedited decision so I'm not sure exactly when we're going to get that uh, that answer but in any event the question is whether the federal government can sue to block implementation yeah. at the state level and um, also whether these lawsuits that are being, or can be can be brought to four as a lawsuit? Can they move forward uh, the way this law is written? So those are the two questions that the Supreme Court listened to brief uh, brief oral arguments yesterday, and I'm sure written briefs too. And um, we'll see.
0: Yeah, It's really interesting that, you know, we're, as I said, we're, we're recording this on November 2nd yes. and the Supreme Court heard arguments in the Texas heartbeat bill just yesterday. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, the pundits, you know, but maybe by the time this podcast comes out, there may be, there may be something being said, but yes, it, it, it's such a, it, it's such an interesting case for um, it, it just because the enforcement mechanism is so different. Being, right. you know, it's not the it's not the state of Texas. It's not the government of the state of Texas that's enforcing it. it it's the private lawsuits, mm-hmm. and I think the you know the 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 certainly the abortion uh, supporters and abortion providers were surprised by it. I mean, they they must have been to some degree, and you know, trying to figure out, oh my goodness, you, you know, and all these, you know, the, the Biden administration as well has been very. Um, working you know overtime trying to, to get this thing stopped yes. and as you said it hasn't yet mm-hmm. but there's some really important questions uh, as you you know as you mentioned here already and we are right in the middle of this you know as we're as we're recording interesting this podcast when
1: we selected this state we didn't know. You know, in
0: terms of recording this, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, oh no, we we yeah, we selected this date about a month or so ago to do this. Uh, but, but what I will say too is, our, our president Joseph Meany, he's from Texas, and he's he's been down in Texas for the past week or so, and, and he's saying, just on the ground, um, this law has made such a huge difference oh. for for pro life people that just the the morale has gone, you know, through the roof. Um, you know, uh, crisis pregnancy centers are getting more and more calls from people um, to get help, and it's just been a wonderful thing. And, and even, and I've I've heard people um, say that even if the Supreme Court says that there's something nefarious about this, and they and they enjoin this law, there have been hundreds of children who have been saved from abortion uh, already. So, um, so it's a good thing. Agree.
1: His mom is a physician, very involved in pro life work in Texas. So. Yes, uh, it's an exciting time for him to be down there.
0: Also. Yeah, yeah. Marie, I want to ask one more thing before we get, before I ask you for your final words of wisdom. And it's it, it's the Congress of the United States, uh, their actions. So on September 24th of this past, well, this year of 2021, the U.S. House of Representatives uh, passed the, and I would say the purposely misnamed Women's Health i got to make sure I can say it correctly, the Women's Health Protection Act. Marie, what does this act do, and does it have any chance of actually becoming law?
1: Let's hope not. It's horrible, horrible, horrible law. In terms of violating states' rights, it's a terrible thing. It would oppose abortion on demand that must be allowed nationwide at any stage of pregnancy through a federal statute, and it would invalidate immediately upon passage state laws. Right. Just a terrible thing. And it's even broader than that. It, any law that's requiring an abortion to be performed by only by a physician, ultrasound laws, parental notice, waiting periods, anything, telemedicine regulation, anything. I mean, it isn't even good health care. It's, right. it's, it's just... Um, uh, very, very broad, knee-jerk law, and how anybody could have voted for it uh, is beyond me. And then how abortion is defined. It's not only to include abortion. I will, any medical or non-medical services related to or provided in conjunction with an abortion, whether or not provided at the same time or on the same day as the abortion. That's a paraphrase from what, what are in the provisions. And we're we're very concerned about therefore it's going to impact contraception and sterilization in, in terms of if you have an objection, as we know we do, because it's mutilating, those two things are mutilating. Um you also can't even in terms of your conscience, will your conscience be impacted by it? And then how does this because it's it's it says related to any medical or non medical services related? Well, what about LGBTQ health services? Are it's just so broad, uh, and how many? I, I just can't understand how anyone uh, could vote for this because of the rights issue, states' rights issue, and um, I don't think it, it in the Senate it will it will pass. I think everyone who voted for it in the House probably knew that themselves. I believe, but. Maybe I'm being optimistic, but
0: Yeah. Yeah, I hope it yeah. I mean it's a it is a horrible bill. But the good thing quote unquote about it is if there was any question about where well let's just be honest, where the Democratic Party is on this issue, it's unmasked. Yes. I mean it is out there. If you want to know where Joe Biden is, if you want to know where Nancy Pelosi is, if you want to know where they are, right. this is it. And this That's is true. unfettered access to abortion up till birth maybe even beyond it depending on how you understand it and it is just it's it is it is horrible um but when hopefully we don't it, have the uh hopefully they're not the uh the votes in the senate
1: that's what i'm hoping on and it the thing is it's so bad it's good it, <laughs> you know what I? Yeah. and that's the, the the former lobbyist in me who you know who, who uh, for 10 years walked the pause of the state capital trying to convince people about natural moral law and had some successes. But sometimes when a bill is so bad, it's good. But then what happens is, well, we can try to amend it to make it more palatable. and they might have known that at the beginning. So, yeah, this looks bad, but we'll get our way because we'll make amendments. And that's the dangerous part right. because then we make the unacceptable acceptable by saying, well, we gave on this. Right. And uh, that's, that's always a, a concern. Uh, when we're saying that it could never pass the Senate well will they try to amend it in a way that uh, makes it make, justifies people voting for it
0: right yeah uh, Marie Hilliard we have we have spoken at length today but I was wondering if you could tell us what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners
1: People sometimes don't realize when they vote for a person and we never advocate party or person but we do advocate platform and you've identified a platform associated with a party they have been very clear about that even in their conventions but members of of a party might in good faith uh, think that uh, an individual candidate we always say that individual candidates are not the same as a party but people who are creating laws and public policy are doing it in our name. And we have to make sure that we understand what we're allowing them to say in our name. And the, the ability to impact legislation starts in the voting booth, but doesn't end there. Once we said, you're my guy, you're my girl, so to speak, my woman. Um, and this is what I... Believe uh, is what you should be saying on my behalf. And every step of the way, and that's why we're involved in these amicus briefs as well as in public comment before HHS, where they're a lot helping human services at the federal level. We have a chance to impact public policy every step of the way, not just in the, the voting booth. And that means staying informed. So go to good resources like the NCBC's public policy page. Your your monthly alerts are your public policy uh, alerts are I think are very helpful and I would ask people to to really look at them because they're up to date what's happening and how we have to be involved once you've alerted folks uh, to the issues of the day.
0: All right, Marie Hilliard, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics on Air.
1: Always oh, good to see you, Joe. And thank you for having me.
0: For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalat. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.